about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Uh, we are well into our series on Galatians, uh, a book written to churches in Galatia who have been receiving some awkward teaching from Jewish teachers about needing to follow the Ten Commandments in order to be acceptable to God. The Ten Commandments, of course, is a short form of the, the massive Jewish law of the Old Covenant that God's people were supposed to live under. And these teachers were saying to them that to be acceptable to God was to live in accordance with these things, especially getting circumcised. And what Paul has been saying is, well, no, that's not right. You do not have to become an ethnic Jew to be acceptable to God. It is about trusting the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. But this raises an interesting question and problem at the heart of the book of Galatians. And that is, well... Why the law then? Why does it exist at all? If faith is by salvation in Jesus, then maybe we should do as one prominent American has suggested recently. Peter, James, and Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures. And my friends, we must as well. What Andy Stanley was thinking about when he said this remark in a sermon was that the Old Testament is full of norms and laws that people find difficult to understand and detract from who Jesus is. And so if we take the Old Testament away and just give them the resurrection and the grace and cross, then that will make more sense. There's something to that, isn't there? There's complexity to the Old Testament God. Richard Dawkins, uh, in one of his more favorite quotes, uh, you can see this on YouTube in full effect if you like, says that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a capriciously malevolent bully. What do we do with the Bible? As a young Christian said to me this week even, most of the Bible is the Old Testament. And how do we make sense of how it all hangs together? Because as the meme says, one does not simply unhitch the Christian faith from the Old Testament. How do we make sense of it as a whole? Where does the law fit if everything is by faith through what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf? That's what we're going to be exploring today. How does, how, where, where does the law fit? How does the Bible actually hold together as one thing? Three things I want to take you through uh, this bit of Galatians this evening. First of all is this. It's always been about faith. Because the promise came first, and so the law makes us need the promise more. First thing is this. It's always been about faith. You see, in verse 6 where Paul goes with this, is he suggests and goes back to the very beginning of the Jewish scriptures to that great figure Abraham from whom Islam, Judaism, and Christianity kind of all grow their lineage. He goes all the way back there to show us that even right back then it was all about faith. In verse 6 it says, and we read it in Genesis 15 verse 6 as well, 
Abraham believed, that is, had faith, same word, in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, context is important, and as you read that bit of Genesis, as you heard it read out, uh, you would have seen that at that point, actually, Abraham isn't doing anything particularly interesting. He's just experiencing doubt, actually. He was promised children. He has no children, and he's wondering whether God will come through for him. He hasn't done any of the impressive things he'll do. He hasn't really got going at all. What does God do? God pronounces his promises to Abraham again. And Abraham looks at them, hears them, and says, I trust that you will come through, that you are good enough to answer these promises. Right back then, it was all about faith in the promises of God. In that God was good enough to come through on what he had promised to Abraham and all of God's people. The text says that it was credited to him as righteousness, which makes it sound strange like he had a faith coin put in a vending machine, got some, you know, righteousness flavored Cheetos out kind of thing. But what it's saying is that through this act of trusting in God's goodness, God then looks down on Abraham, considers him as righteous as acceptable, as perfect even in his sight through his faith. It is something that passively is placed on Abraham by God. Not something that Abraham passively achieves through his own effort. Abraham trusts the promises of God and God looks on him as acceptable. It has always been about faith. From the beginning of Scripture all the way to the end, about or after Jesus is revealed, it has always been about trusting the goodness of God to come through on his promises. And so Abraham, uh, Paul says, understand then that those who believe, those who have faith, are children of Abraham. Children of Abraham is what the Jews would call themselves for following God's law. But Paul says, go back and read your Bible. Abraham was a man of faith. If you're his children, then you have to be people of faith. Then he doubles down in verse 8 and says, you know what? God preached my gospel to Abraham way back then. He preached the gospel in advance, saying all nations will be blessed through you. Through you, the man of faith. Those who have faith will also be blessed when they trust the goodness of God to come through on his promises. So in verse 9, so those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. It has always been about faith. Now at this point, he he considers the opposite. And that is relying upon the works of the law, relying on observing the law. In verse 10, he says, you know what, You, you could trust the promises of God, or I guess you could go a different way. You could trust in your ability to follow the Ten Commandments and the fullness of the Jewish law. It's just that the law says, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. He says, you you know, you can trust God's promises or you could walk out on your own and trust in your goodness to fulfill God's law. It's just that if you miss anything, it's not just that you'll stumble. 
is that you will come under the wrath and judgment of Almighty God. That you will end up cursed. And so he says, clearly no one is justified before God by the law. 613 commandments. Try not breaking one of those. He's painting up two different paths. Either you can trust the goodness of God to come through on his promises, or you can trust in your goodness to fulfill God's law. This way leads to curse, and this way leads to blessing. It has always been about faith. This is something I said to my, uh, my, a bunch of my school friends recently on a WhatsApp conversation. Uh, we went to a school with straw hats, just to give you some context, and we were discussing some of the things that had been in the media about uh, schools with straw hats recently, and it got pretty fiery, and it made me pretty anxious, to be honest, so I put my phone uh, aside for the night just to leave it behind. But when I picked it up in the morning and had a look, the, the conversation had kind of taken a bit of a, a side turn. Somewhere in the middle of discussing what had been happening, uh, they'd opened up this discussion about heaven and hell. And one of the most fervent atheists amongst my school group of friends had declared to the group that the only person in the group going to heaven was me. (laughs) Which was particularly cutting for the other Christian in the group, might I add. (laughs) So I pick up my phone and I'm thinking, what am I going to do with this? And I, I, I basically said to them what I just said to you. I said, you know what? If it came down to me, I, I, I deserve to go to hell. If it was about me trusting in my own goodness, then I am, I, I would, I, I'm cursed according to the law. So instead for me, it is about trusting the goodness of God in his promises in Jesus Christ who can redeem me from my curse that I might go to heaven. My life is about trusting in his goodness, not mine. Because it has always been about faith. But this raises another significant question. Because what Paul's done is just picked up a really obscure Old Testament text and made a little argument from it. And the scripture's full of the law. And so he makes this even stronger statement after that, that not only has it always been about faith, but the reason it's been about faith is because the promise came first. What he goes on to say in verse 16 is, Brothers, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, So it is in this case. You know, when someone writes their will, basically, uh, and they die, that will has to be enacted. You can't change it at that point. If it's been duly established legally and well and properly in process and all that, then it just has to be enacted. You can't alter it or change it. That's what these legal documents and covenants and treaties are like. What it then goes on to say is, actually, do you know what? In the beginning, God made a covenant, a treaty with Abraham. He gave some promises to him. In 16, he says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. The scripture doesn't say to seeds, meaning many people, but to and to your seed, singular. How's that for for reading the fine print, hey, of a contract? It's singular seed in the Hebrew in the Old Testament. 
Paul, what Paul's saying is that in the beginning, God made this treaty promising Abraham one person who would come all the way later and would fulfill the promise that God had given. And Paul says that person was Jesus. All of Scripture is about God answering the promises uh, for Jesus. So Abraham was there all the way back then being promised things. And all the way back uh, when Jesus comes, those things are fulfilled. Now, if God made a will, a legal document in the beginning with Abraham, then anything that comes after can't alter it. So when the law comes 430 years later, as he says in verse 17, it doesn't set aside God's promises. It can't change it. The promise is set. It has to happen. The promise came first. In verse 18, he says, For if the inheritance depends on law, then it no longer depends on a promise, but God, in his grace, gave it to Abraham through a promise. See, what he's saying here is, listen, guys, the law came second. The promise came first. It's always been about trusting the promise. If God gave a law to Abraham, then it would have been always about obeying the law. But the law came second. It has always been about trusting the promises of God. It has always been about the coming of Jesus as the answer to all the promises of God. The whole Bible is one coherent story centered on God answering his promises in the person of Jesus Christ. We don't have to divorce it, pull it apart, forget part of it. It's one beautiful whole story that lifts up the Lord Jesus I think there's something else kind of personally helpful in the midst of this too. Uh, If the Bible is about trusting the promises of God, that gives us a little bit of help in understanding how our faith is supposed to kind of function. You might be in a stage in your faith where you're kind of not feeling it. You know what I mean? You look around and you kind of think other people have this faith thing going and I don't really, and I try to will it up through my discipline and try to be get more faith in myself, but it doesn't seem to work. According to this passage, according to the Scripture, how faith grows is through hearing the promises of God. Stephen Colbert has a quite peculiar faith, let's say, uh, but he has a really interesting conversion story. He left faith behind when he was a young lad, uh, and when he was a bit older had a moment when he was feeling supremely anxious about life in particular, uh, his life, uh, American life, and all that. And And he recalls this one windy day walking through the city of Chicago. And as he's walking along, there are some Gideons on the side of the road. You know how they hand out those little Bibles, the really little ones? Uh, and they hand him a Bible, and he, he takes it willingly, and he, he has to snap it open because it's frozen shut, which is kind of cool. And he goes to the front of the Bible, and... In the, in the front of Gideon's Bibles, there are these headings for different life circumstances and then a scripture under each. Under each. Uh, and so he finds anxiety because that's what he's feeling. And the scripture under it is, Jesus saying, Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And he says, you know what? That's the first time in my life when something literally leapt off the page. And he describes how hearing the promise of Jesus 
ignited faith in God. You see, faith grows through hearing the promises of the gospel. Not just by willing up some mysterious stuff inside you. Hearing the promise and by the Spirit trusting the goodness of God. You see, what you might need in your life right now is to actually work out what are the promises of the gospel that you need to be hearing in the midst of this. About the hope of the life to come, about the the present priestly nature of Jesus Christ, about God's presence with us through all things, of His great holiness, of His great plans, whatever it is, your faith will grow in difficult places through the hearing of the promises of God. So in Scripture, tomorrow morning, wake up and find the promises that you need to start listening to, to trust God's goodness. Because it's always been about faith, because the promise came first. But the third thing we need to talk about is, uh, you know, the question I raised at the beginning that I haven't really answered at all. And that's, well, if it was promise, and then Jesus and the law came second, then why the law at all? Why not just promise Jesus? Why 1,500 years of under the covenant of law? What's the point of that if it's only to be thrown aside? At the end of this section in verse 24 and 25, Paul uses the same word twice. It's supervisor here, but I like the the word guardian a bit better. He calls the law this temporal guardian, uh, which is a word for a chaperone of a teenager in the ancient world who would make sure that young lads would get their way to their classes and not get on too much trouble on the way home. And you'd have this chaperone over you until you were of age. It's kind of a a, a temporal authority placed over a young person until they could enter into their full freedom. And that's what the law is. It's, it's, It's over this period of time in salvation history as this temporal guardian. After the time is gone, uh, the law has no more power. But what does the law do during that period? Well, Paul says, verse 19, what then was the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgression. Until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. Then he goes on. uh, No, wait for a second. That word transgression is really strange what he says there because uh, a transgression is a breaking of a law. So you can't give law because someone's breaking law because it doesn't make sense, right? You can't break laws until you have them, and yet the, the giving of God's law creates this category of transgression, of breaking law, that then grows an awareness and understanding of the place and the presence and the power of sin and the human heart in the world. Then he goes on in verse 21 and says, well, then is the law opposed to the promises? Are they after different things? He says, no, absolutely not. What does the law do? Scripture declares that the whole world is a prisoner of sin. And then in verse 23, before this faith came, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up until faith should be revealed. See the repetition of that prisoner, captive, locked up language in those two verses? This sense in which the law is added and what it 
does, what its presence does, is make the situation worse. Law confines us and it curses us, according to what we read just a little bit earlier. What do I mean by that? Well, um, my, my nephews have started playing chess, which is great. I'm the kind of uncle who lets you win for a little bit and then crushes you. So good. And it's really interesting when you get to the end of a game of chess how much you have to explain to a nine-year-old about what has just happened. They're there with their one king left, and you say, you're in check. This is checkmate. And they're like, well, I can move there. And you're like, no, you can't. There's a bishop there, and it's going to come here. And you're like, well, I can move there. And you're like, no, there's a, a knight there, and it's going to come over here. And do you see the pawn there and there and there and there and there? You can't move anywhere. To which they always say, well, I won't move then. And you say, well, you have to, punk. <laughs> you know, checkmate didn't exist until we started playing chess. But then when we were playing chess, all of a sudden they become confined and stuck. You know, the law does a similar thing. It takes us into this spiritual checkmate. We head off into life trusting our goodness and capacity to get things done, to make ourselves acceptable to God. And God's like, well, there's that whole lack of regard for the poor thing there. And then there's that rampant desire there. And, and then there's what you said to that person and that person and that person and that one and that one. Checkmate. What the law shows us is how hollow our goodness is. How stuck under sin we really are, that we don't just do bad stuff, but that we are totally held by it. And then the law pronounces its curse upon us. Why? You see, the third thing I want to say tonight is this. The law makes you need the promise more. It's only under spiritual checkmate that you realize that your only way out is trusting the goodness of God's promises in Jesus Christ. But there is no other way. Uh, at the end of uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, which kind of comes out of text like this, there's a moment when the white witch claims uh, the traitor Edmund and declares to the lion, Aslan, this traitor belongs to me. According to the law that is laid in this land, he belongs to me. Blood must be shed. And Aslan, in an act of love for Edmund, trades places with him, and the white witch leads Aslan away and ends his life. And there's this very moody, complicated scene where the two young girls are gripping Aslan's mane dead upon a table, weeping and holding him. And all of a sudden, Aslan wakes up, and they're startled, and they're wondering, whoa, what is this? Aslan, what's happening? And Aslan says this. He says, you know, the witch knew about the law. She knew a little magic. But she didn't know the deeper magic. That when an innocent person gave their life for a traitor, the table of the law would break 
and death would run backward. It's a beautiful moment when what appears to be the checkmate of law becomes the gateway to the deeper magic. You see, it is only through the utter conviction of our sinful, deep, broken, messed up, cursed state that we get to appreciate the deeper magic of He who became a curse for us to redeem us from the curse of the law. For cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. See, it's only when you realize that you are completely morally bankrupt and cursed that you really are driven to the deeper magic of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's why the great glory of what this passage unveils for us is really the conviction of sin that the law gives Israel, that it still gives us even though we don't sit under it, is a great grace from God to realize your sin, to realize your state, is to be driven toward and in and embrace and know the deep magic of His grace. So friends, it has always been about faith because the promise came first and the law and the norms, they show us, they drive us, they push us into the deeper magic of His grace. Let's pray. Our Father, we come confessing the hollowness of our own goodness tonight. That we would far prefer to trust how good we are than how good you are in answering and fulfilling your own promise. We confess our spiritual checkmate and the curse that hangs on us, but for his willingness to bear it on the cross. Father, we put our faith in his goodness and not our own. And Father, I pray for this room of people with complicated lives, lots of things happening. Father, I pray that they would find and hear your promises afresh. That the goodness of your name and power might rise in their hearts. And I pray this for Jesus' name. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.